Find other great podcasts like this one at podmoth.network. And welcome to Crime and Spirits, your new favorite true crime and cocktail podcast. I'm your host, Bree. And I'm your other host, Suze. We're best friends who are obsessed with true crime, and we love a good-themed cocktail. So, we took our two favorite things and turned them into a podcast. Every Sunday, we release a new episode covering a different case or topic of interest. I'm the resident bartender here at Crime and Spirits, so every time we get together, I mix up a drink that ties into the episode in some way, shape, or form, and then I teach you how to make one for yourself. That way, you can sip right along with us. We like to keep things conversational around here, so expect some tangents on occasion, as well as some cursing here and there. Think of us as a cross between Dateline and Girls' Night. So, come hang out with us every week while we learn a little something new together. We love to chat with you about whatever, really, but mostly true crime. You better buckle up, Buttercup. And sip tight. Let's get on with the show. Woo! Hello, and welcome back to Crime and Spirits. We are your hosts. My name is Bree, And I'm Suze. Thanks so much for coming to hang out with us. You know we appreciate it when you take some time out of your day to come hang out. As you may have heard in the beginning of this episode, a little friendly reminder, we are now part of the Podmoth Network. Woo-hoo. So you guys will start hearing those ads from the other podcasts. I've started to get to know some of the people that we're going to be working with. It's been really fun. So we're really digging it. I'm really so excited so for you guys as well. But yeah, uh, another piece of exciting news. We got a new review on Apple Podcasts. Yay. We're going to do a little shout out to Janine over at the Identity Podcast. She left us an amazing review. She said, and I quote, great topics and the hosts play off each other really well. This pod is 100% binge worthy. Binge worthy. That's like one of the highest compliments. That is one of the highest honors I think I have could even possibly have achieved at this point. So thank you so much. We can't even begin to express how much that meant to us. If you are out there and you're wondering why we're not talking about how much you love us, you have to write us a review. You should probably go do that. Yes. Pretty please. Do it now. (laughs) All right. All right. So it's still the summer of serial killers over here, but. We are now moving out of California. In fact, today's topic takes us to the complete other side of the country. We are diving into the life and crimes of David Berkowitz. Back in the 1970s, he was known as the Son of Sam, and he was absolutely terrorizing New York City. When the shootings first started, there was no reason to believe that they were the work of just one person. On the surface, the crimes were random, and none of the victims were connected in any way. Over time, the police began to connect some dots here and there and realized that perhaps the shootings weren't as random as they seemed. A pattern emerged and it became glaringly obvious that whoever this person was targeted pretty brunettes. Mm -hmm. Those living in the Big Apple at the time were absolutely terrified. They were on high alert. Rightly rightly so. Absolutely. (laughs) The entire time uh son of sam was active was about 13 months so that's quite some time to just be living on edge every single day law enforcement had very little to go on they were having difficulties with the investigation until one day the police got a break in the case and they were finally able to put a stop to the shootings by the end of it all six people lost their lives and 11 were wounded most 
most of them permanently. Yes. Well, even if it wasn't so much of the physical aspect, it was definitely mentally terrifying. Oh my terrifying. gosh. So much trauma packed up in this little situation here. Right. So the way that David Berkowitz escalated into a skilled shooter is actually pretty frightening. And so is the fact that he was allegedly compelled by demons who told him to kill people for their own enjoyment. There is a whole bunch to unpack here, layers to the onion, if you will. (laughs) So heads up, because this case will involve the discussion of knife and gun violence. There will also be the brief mention of some violence occurring towards an animal. It won't be graphic, but it will be talked about in general terms. So just a heads up. If that's not your jam, we get it. We will catch you next week. And... Following that up, we're definitely going to need a cocktail or perhaps two today. Yeah. And Suze has placed a delicious looking concoction in front of me. So what have we got? Yeah. So it's called the flying grasshopper. I love that. Right. Um, This is a classic after dinner drink. Mm -hmm. It's sweet. It's creamy. And it's a fun color of vibrant green. Mm -hmm. So you already know I love it. Very much so. We are going to add our own twist, of course, as we usually do. I have actually made this cocktail multiple times in my career, but I have always made it frozen, which is not the traditional manner. Oh, interesting. Which I did not know. I mean, that would make sense. But we do get grasshoppers every now and then at Mm -hmm. work. Not too often. But this week we are going to put the blender down and we're going to test out a different version of the grasshopper. So the name grasshopper is derived from the green color of the cocktail. (laughs) Duh. It makes sense, right? The green comes from the creme de menthe, which is a mint liqueur. There is a green version as well as a clear version. Uh, They're mostly interchangeable flavor-wise, except when you want to add that bright green color to something. Mm, Gotta have green. Um, The green comes from either the mint leaves or just coloring that is added. Everybody does it differently, so... That makes sense. Yep. Same with the cream de cacao, which we're using. There's a light and a dark version. The dark version has more of a bitter dark chocolate flavor to it with hints of citrus peel and vanilla, while the light version is softer in chocolate flavor with more of a milk chocolate tone and hints of vanilla. You want to use the light one here because the darker version, it it looks like espresso colored. Yeah, I was going to say it's really darkly colored, so it would kind of throw off the... But it will discolor your drink. It's going to throw off the vibe we're going for here. We want it to be nice and bright and green. So the lighter version of this is clear. So that's what you want to use here. Um, And also softer, more milk chocolatey, Mm -hmm. (laughs) done and more done. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We also are using a chocolate vodka because it was on sale a little while ago and I've just been dying to put it in something. Mm -hmm. This is what makes it the flying grasshopper is the vodka aspect. Oh, okay. Because the traditional grasshopper does not have the vodka in it. Interesting. I don't know why that makes it fly because I think vodka would not make you fly. But (laughs) is it because it's more, I guess, like higher? I was going to say higher in alcohol content and all that Um, jazz. I think it's something along those lines. I would assume because the other things are just liqueurs, basically, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yep. Or cordials. Yeah. And honestly, if you don't want the vodka, you can leave it out. If you just want to use regular vodka, feel free. Mm-hmm. And whipped would be good. Oh, yeah. I bet. Anything that goes with chocolate. I mean, I haven't tried it yet, but I just imagine that whipped would be yeah, good yeah. with this one. <laughs> so, like I mentioned, the grasshopper, it's sweet. It's mint flavored. It was traditionally an after dinner drink. A bar in the French Quarter of New Orleans named, I'm going to spell it because ain't no way this girl is saying this, <laughs> T-U-J 
A-G-U-E-S. Oh, okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I tried the one where it tells you how to say it, and she was like, bleh. So. (laughs) Sorry. speak has been doing us real dirty Dirty, I'm not a fan. Um, So this bar claims to have invented the drink in 1918, specifically the owner, a man named Philip. The drink gained popularity during the 50s and 60s throughout the American South. It picked up in popularity again in the disco era, I'm assuming because of the color. Yeah. But all the sources I checked just said disco people liked it. No one knows why. <laughs> Maybe because you had to eat a big dinner and this mint will help settle your stomach a little. Maybe. And then you would go out, out dancing, probably. Drinking and dancing and stuff. Because, I mean, nobody doing that on a full stomach. Yeah, no. Bad news bears. Mm-mm. Um, so if anybody knows, you let me know and I will correct myself, (laughs) but, um, in Wisconsin, they have supper clubs. They like to blend it like a milkshake. They sub out the cream or milk for ice cream. A typical grasshopper is made with equal equal parts of the green cream to menthe, the light cream to cocoa and cream. You can use milk, any milk substitute, but just keep in mind, we used whole milk. So it made it a little thinner in consistency, but it still tastes great. So, we were not making an extra trip to the store. I'm sorry. Also, they want you to use heavy cream. I just mm. can't do it. It's just too much. But it will produce that nice, thick drink. Yeah. So just keep that in mind. Generally speaking, creamy beverages are not my jam. So I'm not mad that we went with something that doesn't make it as thick. Right. So It's still good. I've tried it. Bria's not, but it's still good. <laughs> um, so... Again, we're adding the vodka. This is a double chocolate vodka from 360. Um, It's just sounded really good. They have a really cool bottle. So that's initially what drew me to it. Mm -hmm. Um, The swing top on the top of the bottle. um, You can either reuse the whole bottle when it's all connected or you can take off the bottle top and return it to the company. They offer free prepaid envelopes on their website. And for every top that is returned, they donate to an environmental organization or another local charity. Oh. So I thought that was cool. I love that. Yes. I thought that was a great idea. Yeah. So the more you know, they would also make cool spooky bottles for Halloween if you like to repurpose stuff. <laughs> yeah. That's why um, I've been hiding this right, bottle. Right. Like, when are we going to make it crack creepy? into that one? <laughs> so the drink itself is super duper easy to make. We are using a martini glass. So we chilled that in the freezer while we mixed everything up. You simply add equal parts of all the ingredients to a shaker tin filled with ice. So in this instance, it's one ounce of the 360 double chocolate vodka, one ounce of the green creme de menthe, one ounce of the light creme de cocoa, and one ounce of cream or whatever you're using. Shake it all up till it's chilled and well combined and then strain it into your prepared glassware. If you want to get fancy like we did and drizzle some chocolate in the glass, feel free to do it. If you want to shake some nutmeg on top, feel free to do that, too. The more extra you get, the better with cocktails, in my opinion, like this. So I like to make things pretty, pretty and bougie. Right. So, test it out. Ooh. It tastes like an Andy's mint. That's good. And there's multiple variations. You can use peppermint schnapps if you can find a... Dark chocolate cream liqueur, mm-hmm. you can add that. That will change the flavor profile, but there's a million different ways That's to make good. it. It's good as a milkshake, mm-hmm. too, but I like this version. It's a little bit lighter. Yeah. Yeah. Because we wound up using whole milk mm-hmm. instead of the heavy cream. Yeah. See, I think that is just... It would have been too much, I think. I agree. <laughs> but, That's my poor little tummy. Yeah. Can't handle that. 
again, you use whatever makes yeah. you happy. <laughs> I also cocktail. feel like if you're going for like a chocolatey vibe and you want, you don't want to put like cho- chocolate liqueur, a dark chocolate almond milk would probably work mm-hmm. really well on this. It sure would. Mm. It would, of course, not be as green, but it would be delicious. It would be good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. So. We are prepared with some cocktails. Before we get into the nitty gritty of things, we are actually going to take a moment and hear from one of our Pod Moth Network friends. Please enjoy what you are about to hear. Oh, hi. If you're looking for another spooky and funny podcast to add to your rotation, check out Anything Bones, now part of the Pod Moth Network. Hey, Boneheads, I'm Sophie Schwartz. And I'm Caitlin Hart. And we're the hosts of Anything Bones, the podcast where we talk about bones and bone-related topics. So, what are bone-related topics? Thank you for asking, Caitlin. This can be anything from mausoleums to murderers, famous skeletons to cadaver dogs. Bone churches, mummies, serial killers. You'll hear about them all. And sometimes we have guests stop by and tell us their favorite bony tales. Check out Anything Bones on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever your little heart desires. We release new episodes every Saturday. Bone Voyage! All right, grab your drink and let's buckle the fuck up because we are going to dive right on in to the son of Sam. I find this case really fascinating. And I know you guys will get it why. Because, like, there's mm-hmm. just, like, we go on such a journey yes. with this individual. And it's not going to go, if you're not familiar with this case, it's not going to go where you think it is. Not even a little bit. So, spoiler alert right there. Yep. All right. So, David Berkowitz was born as Richard David Falco on June 1st, 1953, in Brooklyn, New York, to a young woman named Elizabeth, a.k.a. Betty, Broder. She grew up in an impoverished Jewish family and, like most girls of that time, got married quite early in order to get out of a kind of fucked up situation. So in 1936, she married an an Italian-American named Tony Falco, despite her family's objections. Tony wasn't Jewish. The two managed, and that's why they didn't like him. They were like, this is just nonsense. You didn't do that back then. No. Mm -mm. But she was just like, you know what? Or she loves him. I'm not sure. There weren't a lot of details. Mm -mm. The two managed to start a fish market together in 1939. And before you know it, their daughter, Rosalind, was born. Unfortunately, after Rosalind joined the family, Tony wound up leaving Betty for another woman. Subsequently, the fish market went under and Betty was struggling with suddenly becoming a single mother and probably way more poor than she wanted to be. Mm -hmm. So soon, Betty began an affair with a married man named Joseph Kleinman. Life was fine for the most part until Betty got pregnant. Joseph was not happy about this, to say, to be light about it. And (laughs) in no uncertain terms, he told her, get rid of it. Don't care how. Don't care why. Not interested. Mm -hmm. Knowing that if she were to keep her baby, Joseph wasn't going to be supportive in any way. She arranged for an adoption. Joseph literally told her straight up that he would leave her and that he would not pay any child support. So luckily she was able to find a nice upstanding Jewish family willing to adopt her baby boy. The couple, Nathan and Pearl Berkowitz, were overjoyed by the thought of having a child. 
Once they were able to bring him home, they flipped around his first and middle name, making him David Richard Berkowitz. The family were hardware store retailers, and they were of modest means. By all accounts, there weren't any obvious warning signs. And by this, I mean people didn't actively see him doing things like setting fires, wetting the bed, you know, that kind of stuff. But he was described as somewhat troubled as a child. He was a loner and didn't really care to socialize with people very often. And his parents didn't really think this was too odd because they were similar in nature. And I mean, I kind of get that because if I were to have kids and they were just like, you know what? I want to stay inside away from people and just do my own thing. I'd be be like, like, you know what? Me too. (laughs) Let's Let's do it. (laughs) Watch some TV and order pizza. Right. (laughs) However, David always felt as if he was out of place while growing up. He was incredibly smart, which unfortunately led to a disinterest in education at a pretty early age. He did play baseball, but um, thought he was way too big for his age and that it hindered him both in sports and just in life in general. He didn't think he was very good looking, which is like the terrible frosting on this awful self-esteem poop cake we're baking here. (laughs) Throw in the fact that he suffered some head injuries as a child and we've hit the trifecta. All of these terrible feelings began to affect David in several different ways. The most notable was his anger. He was often described as a, quote, good-looking kid with a violent streak, end quote. He would assault the other kids in the neighborhood and just generally act like a big, fat menace that I believe he was referred to as a bully several times. Nathan and Pearl seemed to have tried their very best, but they were having difficulties reining him in, so they sort of didn't know what else to do. Mm Mm-hmm. When David was 14 years old, uh, his adoptive mother, Pearl, suddenly passed away. This took place in the fall of 1967. She had breast cancer, which she and Nathan actually kept from David. Well, you know, he knew that she had cancer, but he had no idea how bad the prognosis was. She originally had it before he was born, but it resurfaced in 65 and then again two years later. He was alarmed by the effects of the disease itself, as well as the treatments that Pearl had to undergo before her passing. And losing Pearl deeply affected both Nathan and David. The family at the time was actually getting ready to move into a new apartment, a brand new high rise in Co-op City. And unfortunately, Pearl never got the chance to move into their new home. David began to fall apart. For lack of a better term, his grades suffered. His faith in God was shaken at its core. And he was becoming more introverted as time went on. David also began to think that maybe perhaps his mother's death was part of some grand master plan to destroy him. Hmm. And this is notable because this is kind of the first moment in the timeline that we see mention of any kind of delusional thinking on David's part. And also... Come on, man. Mm. The world is out to get me. Mm. What we're going to see is a lot of like this, the classic, the tale as old as time, right? Like this guy felt as if the world owed him. I feel like um, Andrew Kehoe, Mm -hmm. I feel like we saw a lot of that with him, you know, like no matter what happened, it was always spun that he was the victim. He was. He was offended. He was bothered. He was slighted. It's not ever your choices that are doing this. It's the world and the people around you. And I mean, to an extent, he definitely, like, 
I'm not sympathizing with a killer here, but def- David definitely didn't have like a full deck of playing cards right. when he entered into the game. But ultimately, he was making these decisions right. and doing these things. Absolutely. So, four years after Pearl's untimely death, Nathan remarried. David did not care for this lady, and the two did not get along, like, not even a little bit. (laughs) Nathan actually didn't seem bothered by this. In fact, he and wife number two would eventually take off to Florida and leave 18-year-old David basically to fend by himself. Um, By all accounts, Nathan and David had a strained relationship throughout David's life, so I'm going to guess this isn't too surprising. Like, what else can I do for you? You're a grown-up now. See you later. Bye. Yeah, and I also (laughs) feel like that was a way more... um common mindset for parents to have then Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um at least the two waited until david graduated from high school so there's that um now during his teen years we just see more anger and frustration brewing within david he would often lament over his lack of a social life and say that he was unable to get a girlfriend this was a humongous sticking point pun intended for him (laughs) he was quoted as saying quote sex i believe is the answer the way to happiness end quote and because he could not land a lady friend he felt as if he was being unfairly denied the key to his happiness Mm. naturally yeah naturally though (laughs) this led an already troubled david into an even deeper depression and a lot more anger which we're going to see is this giving anybody else like big time incel vibes? Yeah. Before we knew what that was. Mm-hmm. They've always been out there, Brie. Uh, that's what I'm <laughs> saying. That it's not a new concept. But I mean, it literally was, It's. it feels like it's right out of that handbook. Like, Absolutely. It, sex is the answer and the only way to have happiness. All this, that, and third. This reeks of like an entitlement to mm-hmm. sex because of, whatever reason he feels like it right i don't know i just thought it was really an interesting kind of layer i could see in this whole situation so with very little to no direction in his life david turned to the army in 1971 he enlisted and went on to serve at fort knox during his time in the armed forces he became an excellent marksman he also served in south korea before being honorably discharged three years later After leaving the army, David sought out his biological mother, whom he eventually found. It took a few visits, but she did go on to share some details with him regarding his birth and his adoption and that whole fucked up situation. She also informed him that his biological father had actually died in 1965. As you can imagine, all of this upset David very much. He was under the impression that his biological mother had actually died while giving birth to him. And now he finds out that not only is she alive, she was actively with his father the whole time. He also was likely reeling about the fact that he had not one, but two reluctant father figures in his life. According to forensic anthropologist Elliot Layton, David's discovery about his birth was the quote unquote primary crisis of his life. And that this revelation shattered his sense of identity. And where did we see that before? Ted Bundy. Yeah. Oh, jeez. Yeah, feel right. Like we see it a lot more than we realize. Yeah. Too, well, in especially the, in this business. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, like <laughs> diving into the cases in the way that we are, it's kind of crazy. Yes, almost alarming. 
Um, so over time, David's communication with Betty lapsed. She became distant and seemed pretty disinterested in maintaining a relationship with him. Although sources seem sort of split on this one. Some say that he was the one to back away from his mother and sister, despite them trying their best to welcome him into their family. You never know. Take it with a grain of salt. Yeah. This whole thing just cemented the idea that he was unwanted, not only by his mother, but just by women in general. And this made him so mad. Like, he was big, big mad. Yes. Mm-hmm. This led to David's state of mind becoming quite bleak and pretty hopeless. In November of 1975, he wrote his father a letter that said, quote, it's gloomy, it's cold and gloomy here in New York, but that's okay because the weather fits my mood, gloomy. Dad, the world is getting darker now. I can't feel, I can feel it more and more. The people are developing a hatred for me. You wouldn't believe how much some people hate me. Many of them want to kill me. I don't even know these people, but still, they hate me. Most of them are young. I walk down the street and they spit and kick at me. The girls call me ugly and they bother me the most. The guys just laugh. Anyhow, things will soon change for the better, end quote. Hmm. That's not ominous not at all. Not even a little bit. And also probably not true. Yeah. Also, in so many also probably that. After this letter was written and sent, David locked himself in his apartment for almost a month straight, only leaving for food. He also wrote phrases on his walls that were pretty off-putting, to say the very least. Things like, quote, in this hole lives the wicked king, kill for my master, and I turn children into killers, end quote. I'm sorry, what now? the twists and turns that this case takes because why what was the purpose of writing these things on the wall right nobody saw them of your own house yeah nobody's going in or out but you right and you're barely going out so right delusion i mean most likely and that's what we're going to kind of see here all right let's take just a moment to talk about David's fantasy world and how it was affecting his life at this time. Because this is the part that's kind of confusing, I think, mm-hmm. if you don't kind of take a moment to spell it out for yourself, kind of. So while David was out living his life, kind of just being a part of the world, he concurrently existed in a fantasy world of his own making. According to David Abrahamson, a forensic psychiatrist, psychoanalyst, and author. He said that in David's case, quote, there was no thought disorder, no insanity, no deterioration of judgment. Mr. Berkowitz manifested a psychopathic personality. End Mm. quote. How and or why does a psychopathic personality just appear? Manifest without there being anything else. I, I genuinely am so curious about that. Maybe it was just all the combined traumas became one big push. Like clusterfuck yeah. there. You know what I mean? Yeah, I definitely. And instead of having a mental disorder or something, his brain just went, I can't deal with this. Maybe more something along the lines of like a break, like a mm-hmm. psychotic break, yeah. maybe. That like, we, like, let's just manifest something else to take this away. <laughs> I can't deal with this version of reality. Yeah, I mean, that, man, that had to have been scary to experience in, yeah. in any capacity here. And according to 
this doctor. So this doctor, Abrahamson, he actually had corresponded with Berkowitz post his arrest. And they actually worked together to write this crazy book. Mm-hmm. It sounded really interesting. I think we're actually going to have to put it on our TBR. Yeah. So he found that Berkowitz was absolutely obsessed with death and that he would often like fantasize about being ordered to kill people by demons that spoke to him through voices. Yes, you heard that correct. This is a whole thing. Now you couple this with a staunch belief that killing women would help spare them their inevitable suffering and you get the son of Sam. Again, just like fucking Bundy. Right. He thought that these women would eventually learn the nature of their birth, like the truth. And that would inevitably lead them to suffering like he would. So he was like, you know, I got to get and nip that in the bud. That's doesn't even make any sense. No, it doesn't. And you warp that with this like crazy delusion of these demons just yelling at you all the time. And here we are from anywhere. Literally never knew. Sometimes he knew, but not always where they were coming from. Mm hmm. And I, I don't think it was later until like until later mm-hmm. in the whole situation here that something like that actually manifested for him. So, you know, here we are. It's 1974. David had gotten rejected by the army, his mother, his sister, and he caught a venereal disease from a sex worker that he actually linked up with while he was in the military. Mm-hmm. And not so fun fact about this. Uh, it was likely his one and only sexual encounter. That's what they say. That's mm. the rumor on the street. And, and it would it would not surprise me. No, it, me neither. I feel like it would completely line up with what we know of him. Right. And I also found this really interesting that there was kind of like a situationship happening with a friend of his, Iris Gerhardt. He fantasized that the friendship was much more than it actually was. And that's just another example kind of of how he would take real world situ- real world situations and kind of apply them to what made him happy or fed his delusions. That's literally how none of this works. <laughs> sir. Sir. Right. No. <laughs> False. All right. So before the murders began, David began to dabble. I would say a little more than dabble, but he started with arson. (laughs) He had a diary in which he recorded every single fire he set, which, when all was said and done and tallied up, amounted to a staggering total of 1,488 fires. What? That is a lot. That is an absurd amount of fire setting. (laughs) For one person? Yes. Yes. How much time do you have to have on your hands to accomplish this? It does seem like he had a lot of free time. That's fair. That's fair. Um, according to the experts, he was acting out a control fantasy per Robert Ressler, quote, most arsonists like the feeling that they are responsible for the excitement and violence of a fire, end quote. I absolutely think this applied here. Yes. One thousand percent. Unfortunately, arson was just not enough to keep the demons at bay. So David finally gave in to their demands in December of 1975. It was Christmas Eve when he grabbed a large hunting knife and just went out on the prowl looking for a young female victim. He didn't really have anything specific other than gender in mind when searching because, quote, the demons would let him know when he found the right woman, Mm. end quote. So that's terrifying. That could be anybody, anybody on the street. Yes. And it was Mm -hmm. because eventually he saw a woman leaving a grocery store when he received the demon's order. Kill her. Do it right now. 
He approached the young woman and stabbed her with the hunting knife twice. She turned and screamed at him, which freaked him out, so he ran away. A little while later, he came across 15-year-old Michelle Foreman, who he then attacked from behind. She was stabbed six times, but thankfully her screaming, again, scared David off. Both victims were able to make it to safety and luckily survived. These encounters taught him two things. One, these actions pacified the demons and gave him a break from them, so got to keep doing it, right? (laughs) Right. Two, he would need a different method of killing. Apparently the knife was just not efficient enough for him. Mm. Oof. (laughs) That's, I don't like that thought. Mm Mm-mm. But that's sad where his brain is already at. He hasn't even started murdering people yet. Right. But he's already, well, I need to up the ante. Mm-hmm. Well, and I I would imagine that his military training kind of kicked in there. Because, I mean, you're kind of taught how to be more effective yes. in situations like that. So I feel like it it doesn't even, it doesn't, I guess what I'm getting at is that it doesn't feel like a stretch for him. Right. That that was his next logical thought. I just don't know how you go from crazy, illogical demons are talking to me. (laughs) I'm writing shit on my walls to I need to be more efficient at this. (laughs) You know what I mean? No, I do. I really do. And I think that is like a very very clearly not a true psychotic break, though. Because you're having these logical thoughts like I need to put what I know into practice. Right. And that is. That right there is what fucking gets me about this case so much because there's such a duality in Mm -hmm. it. And there's moments where he is absolutely batshit crazy. But then there's also these moments of clarity that makes you really question how in control was he? Right. Because I I have questions. I have doubts. Yes. Lots of them. It gets worse, though. It does. It really does get worse. Get ready, guys, because after these initial attacks, David actually moved residences. He was living in a tiny Brock's apartment that he just defaced for about a month when he decided to upgrade to a two-family home in Yonkers. I don't know why, but I really like the name Yonkers. Yonkers. Now, this property was uh, owned by Jack and Nan Cassera who just so happened to have a German shepherd dog that lived with them. Now, allegedly, this dog was loud as fuck, and he would constantly just howl and howl, which would encourage the other dogs in the neighborhood to also howl. It was a whole conversation they were having, and this just drove David nuts. He was quoted saying, I'd come home at 6.30 in the morning. It would begin then, the howling. On my days off, I heard it all night, too. It made me scream. I used to scream out begging for the noise to stop. It never did. End quote. Now, those are the ramblings of a man who does not have any idea of what mental peace sounds like. Right. Which just makes me have more questions. Right. (laughs) So what made matters worse is that David actually interpreted these howls specifically as the demons. And he interpreted these howls as orders for him to go hunting for the blood of pretty girls. Hmm. Okay. David said that, quote, the demons never stopped and that he couldn't sleep because of it. So now we're adding sleep deprivation to this whole like cocktail of awfulness that we've got going on here. He stayed in that home for about three months and he just couldn't stand it. Despite 
I think paying for like a two year lease. He had a significant deposit down, didn't even care, just left, didn't want any of his money back. Unfortunately, even after moving, he still couldn't escape these deranged fantasies. And soon enough, the Caseras actually became a part of it too. Jack kind of like took on this persona or like representation of a general or commander in chief of the devil dogs. The devil dogs. I know it sounds crazy, guys. It feels weird to say it, but that's what he thought. And now what's even worse is that he went and moved next door next door to another dog. Mm-hmm. And this one was a black Labrador named Harvey. And he specifically bothered David. His owner was a man named Sam Carr. And in David's delusion, Sam was the most powerful of all the demons that worked for the general. So he moved right in to like the devil's lair, mm-hmm. if you will, in his mind. And unfortunately, it really escalated. And David was so distraught that he actually took measures to try and end things by killing Harvey. He made a couple of attempts, one of which included a Molotov cocktail. The other other was a shooting. Thankfully, Harvey made a full recovery and he was okay. That's Harvey. the he only silver mean, lining in this situation. You mean to give those demonic orders. But it's so crazy to me because, I mean, okay, we're sitting here talking about a grown-ass man who is like, I'm. this dog is barking and he's telling me to kill people. Like, that's, that's basically it, right? Well, and, and taking it so seriously that he's leaving behind security deposits and rent that's paid mm-hmm. just to get away from it. Right, like... Obviously, there's something. So now you're making crazy decisions based on delusions. Yeah. It's just- <laughs> Where was that moment of clarity when you were trying to sign a lease here, sir? Right. Maybe you should have looked to see if there was a dog just in the neighborhood. The neighborhood, or stop for five seconds and listen. Just putting <laughs> right. That out there. I mean, especially in New York. Come on. It's loud everywhere in New York. You have no excuses. Right. So this brings us to the first shooting. This occurred on July 29th, 1976. 18-year-old Donna Loria and 19-year-old Jody Valente were returning home from a night out. They were sitting inside Jody's car and they were parked outside of Donna's home. It was about 1 a.m. when Donna told Jody goodnight and she went to open the car door. Suddenly, a man approached the vehicle, which startled the girls. I mean, I would also... I would more than startled be very uh, probably swearing at you I was gonna say I'd be very upset when Jody was turning to address this stranger he reached into the brown paper bag he was holding and pulled out a gun then the man crouched braced an elbow on his knee and fired five direct shots into the vehicle Donna was shot in the neck and arm which caused her to fall from the car and land on the pavement Jody was struck in the thigh which caused her to scream fall forward and land on the horn. So Donna's father was inside, but he was in the process of taking the family dog out when he heard the shots go off and then the horn and then a lot of screaming. So he ran to the car. He found Jody leaning on the horn, still screaming, and the shooter was nowhere to be found. Donna's father called the police and EMS arrived quickly. Soon everyone was on their way to the hospital. Unfortunately, Donna had succumbed to her injuries Judy, however, was miraculously okay. All things considered, she was hysterical, but 
she was coherent enough to give the authorities a description of the shooter. They were described as a white male with short curly hair, which was cut in a mod style. He was around 30 years old and had a fair complexion. The shooter stood at about five foot eight inches and weighed about 220 pounds. Jody was adamant that she had never seen this man before. She was 100,000% that he was a stranger to her. And honestly, she's a lot more informative than I would be. Yeah. If I was attacked that, in the middle of the night. <laughs> and while it definitely was a vague description, I mean, it was more than I'd be able to get for sure. I feel like it was a person. Yeah. With a gun. So I don't know <laughs> what else there you to go. tell you. Your job is to figure this out, not mine. Right, right. <laughs> um, she was also pretty sure because, of course, the police were like, you know, could have been one of Donna's maybe ex-boyfriends out Somebody for revenge, like yep. some sort of weird plot like that. But again, Jody was adamant that it was none of that. Unfortunately, this didn't really help a whole lot. As we can see, like I mentioned, it's an incredibly vague description and could be literally anybody. They're in New York City. There's so many people there. I guarantee there's a lot of five foot eight, 220 pound, fair complexioned 30 year old men. Right. <laughs> with hair. Like, right. I mean, like I said, that's more descriptive than I could get, mm -hmm. but not helpful to the police. Right. right. Unfortunately, it just wasn't really a lot for them to go on. Police at the scene spoke to some neighbors. A couple people did report seeing a yellow compact car parked somewhere near Jody's. This car was notably missing by the time the police arrived on scene. Suspicious, to say the least. Super suspicious. Additionally, the police were able to discern that a 44 caliber bulldog revolver was the type of gun used by the suspect. Not so fun fact, this gun is used notoriously for the sole purpose of killing a human being. And after learning this, it was surmised that perhaps... The shooting was a mafia hit gone wrong. Maybe a mistaken identity situation, something like that. The police were just, there wasn't a lot of evidence. There wasn't a lot to go on. It. I don't want to say that they were writing it off in like a judgy way, but I feel like that's what they were like. Well, I mean, not a lot for us to do. Right. Got to keep it moving. And I mean, they. there was this high population of Italian people living in the area. So obviously to them, it was the mob's fault. There was a lot of tension going on in that time regarding all of that. Active, right. Like, publicly active, I guess I should say. I'm sure they're still active. Right. But <laughs> right, right. Mm -hmm. Not like back then. Right, exactly. So the next shooting occurred October 26th. 20-year-old Carl DeNaro and 18-year-old Rosemary Keenan were a couple enjoying an evening out when they were attacked. After leaving a bar, they got into their red VW and sought out a quiet spot to park. Yeah. <laughs> they were just sitting there chatting when suddenly the car windows ex exploded. The shooter fired into the vehicle five times. Carl was struck once in the back of the head. Rosemary, by some miracle, wasn't hit at all. So she started the car and sped away to try and get some help. Carl's injury was significant, but not fatal. He did have to have a metal plate put onto the back of his skull, but he did survive. So silver linings. Right. Um, Rosemary was definitely shaken up, but she was physically unharmed. The couple didn't realize what was happening at the time and hadn't known they were shot at all, really, until they arrived at the hospital. The police investigated the scene thoroughly. 
Rosemary's father just happened to be a 20-year NYPD veteran, so things got pretty intense pretty quick. <laughs> um, the only thing they were able to figure out, though, was the type of gun used, a 44 caliber. This didn't set off alarm bells for anyone at first because the shootings happened in different boroughs, so therefore they were being investigated by two different precincts. Not a lot of communication back then. We see this a lot in cases that happened back then. Mm -hmm. Um, There didn't seem to be any motive for either shooting either, so very little progress was made in the investigations, despite law enforcement's very best efforts here. It really did seem like they were... Doing I mean, their best. What what was there to do? Right. This is what is really scary to me about shooters specifically. I think because they're all terrifying. It's all awful. But like, I don't know. With your more like traditional serial killers, they fuck up. There's stuff left behind at the scenes. There's just more forensic evidence often because it's more violent. And I'm not saying that's better. More up close and personal, too. But Shootings I, can be very, not very, but they can be more distant. Yeah, that just, what it all scares me. But the gun? I'm sure there's people out there that we don't know about that right. are just changing out their guns because they can. Right, exactly. I mean, you just never know. Ugh, terrifying. Right. And this, <laughs> and these poor New York City people, 13 mm-hmm. months lived with incidents like this just kind of happening every few months or so now the following shooting took place on november 27th and thankfully it did not result in any casualties the attack occurred around midnight in queen 16 year old don demassi and 18 year old joanne lamino were sitting on jane's stoop chatting about the movie they had just seen a man dressed in military fatigues crossed the road and began to approach them he started to speak to the girls Quote, say, can you tell me how to get to? And before he finishes his sentence, the suspect pulled out a revolver and began firing. Both girls turned and ran towards the door. However, they were hit and fell to the ground before they reached it. The man fired several more times before fleeing fleeing the scene. Joanne was shot in the lower back, which shattered her spine and rendered her a paraplegic. Donna was shot in the neck, but managed to walk away without... Any severe, I guess, like long-lasting injuries. Right. No long-lasting physical injuries at the very least. When police investigated the scene, they spoke to some neighbors. One had heard the gunshots and rushed out in time to see a blonde man holding a pistol run right past him. The police were considering the possibility of the perpetrator of this attack being the same guy who orchestrated the first shooting but they were put off by the differences in eyewitness descriptions. And to them, the connection was just unlikely. Right. And thus they deemed it as so. Well, so a victim saw a short, pudgy, dark haired man. A witness to this saw a blonde man running. So yeah. I don't know. I get it. They don't right. match up. These I, pieces aren't fitting yet. And it, exactly. I mean... Again, we have the pleasure or the bonus of hindsight. It's easy for us to be like, obviously, it was the same. But I mean, I can't imagine being in the thick of it. Too. How are you supposed to determine that when you're getting to how many of these officers had pretty young brunette wives or yeah, girlfriends or daughters or you know what I mean? Yeah. They also probably just had their hands full trying to keep themselves and their family safe at the same time. On January 30th, 1977, 30-year-old John Deal and his fiancée, 26-year-old Christine Frund, were attacked just after midnight. 
The couple had just gone to the movies. They were getting ready to enter a dance hall when the shooting occurred. They were sitting in their car when suddenly three gunshots rang out. The windows in their Pontiac Firebird were again shattered. John panicked and sped away. So he sustained some minor injuries, but unfortunately, Christine was struck twice in the head, and she did wind up passing away a few hours after their arrival at the hospital. Police, yet again, find themselves running into dead ends left, right, center while investigating this scene. Neither victim saw the assailant, so they couldn't get any sort of description. Police did figure out that the weapon used was a... 44 caliber bulldog, hmm. which did wind up connecting this incident to the others. But this line of thinking was dismissed again, citing the same issue as before, inconsistent description or none of the assailants. That's the only thing that got me in this is- instance is that they didn't have a description. But yeah, it was the third consecutive shooting with the same gun. I don't know. Those guns allegedly are pretty vicious, so I would be looking into the guns, I guess, start there. I agree, and I feel like if your first thought with the first shooting was mafia or, like, mob-related, obviously you know they had to have had some base knowledge of what that weapon was capable of. Right, I'm sure absolutely. as being in law enforcement, they were probably at least, Seeing like... Seeing all kinds of stuff yeah. on the streets of New York in the 70s. Right. I can't even... I can't even fathom. Right. I can't even imagine. No, I agree. A couple months went by before the shooter struck again on March 8th. 19-year-old Virginia Virginia V. She's got a very complicated last name that I, again, am not going to attempt to butcher. Just going to say Virginia V. She was killed around 7.30 that evening. She was returning to her home from Queens when she sidestepped a man so he could pass by her. In return... He pulled out a gun and shot her in the head. Virginia had tried to hold her textbooks up as a defense, which just broke my little heart. I know. I was like, this poor little girl was fighting to the very end. Honestly, unfortunately, it did little to help her. She was killed almost instantly. Police learned that the shooter in this instance used the same kind of weapon as all of the others. It was becoming clear that Mm. this was likely the same person or at the very least a group of people who had a similar goal. The police also found it very interesting that Virginia lived slash was killed only a block away from where Christine Freund was shot. Hmm. The coin- There's not that many coincidences. There no. The way that this is all lining up and the mm-hmm. way that it continues to do so is just way too eerie yes. for it to be a coincidence. So at this point, the police finally publicly acknowledged that the crimes were similar and might could be connected. There were two common themes in each attack. One is the fact that all the victims had been shot by 44 caliber bullets. And two, the intended targets were all young women with long, dark hair. You might be asking yourself here, but what about Carl? (laughs) Very clearly. Carl. Carl. (laughs) So, well... He had shoulder length hair at the time of his attack. So police assume that the shooter didn't realize it was a man and not a woman. Yeah. It's dark. You see long, dark hair. Whatever. Especially, I mean, we know what the shooter was kind of like the thought process behind choosing the victim. So, I mean, it wasn't allegedly a conscious thing on his Mm -hmm. part. 
So NYPD Sergeant Richard Conlon stated during a press conference that the police were, quote, leaning towards a connection in all these cases, end quote, and that the public should remain vigilant while out and about at night. Additionally, the police released two composite sketches, one with dark hair and one with blonde, just to cover those bases. I don't know why, but that just made me chuckle when I I was going through your research. (laughs) I don't know. Just throw darts at it. I mean... See At this hits. point, they what, had what nothing else, else do, to do. So, right? I mean. So, the sergeant also informed the public that they were, at the time, looking for multiple suspects. Of course, the media went bananas for this. They began publishing every detail, any speculation they could find or heard, anything to do with the case. In the meantime, law enforcement looked for people who owned a yellow VW and or a 44 caliber Bulldog revolver. It's estimated that police during this time interviewed thousands of people that matched any part of that description. That's that crazy. It is me. a lot. <laughs> At least. It, but again, it, it's not for lack of trying mm-hmm. here. <laughs> it's kind of like what we saw last week with the Cleveland Torso murder. Mm-hmm. Like the police, they were trying what are you supposed to do when you have nothing to go right. off of and you have no direction and you're literally in New York fucking city of all places? One, I mean, I'm telling you, Cleveland back then was the same way. Just yeah. people everywhere. Exactly. People coming and going. Same with New York. Mm-hmm. There are so many displaced people. And mm-hmm. I feel like the same could be said for New York Absolutely. pretty much at any point in time. So I feel like a lot of people think I'm going to make it big or find my fortune or this could be it. And yeah. It's not always the case. That's probably also why L.A. ended up with Skid Row mm-hmm. at the end of the day, because it was the same vibe. You want to be an actor, be successful in Hollywood. You had to be in Hollywood. And at least if you don't have a home to live in, the weather is pleasant. Right. If I had to choose between the two, I'm going to Cali. I hope I never have to. But yes, I'm also, also same. I'm incredibly it grateful for all that I have. And I remind myself of that every single every day. day. <laughs> All right, so the next shootings occurred in the spring of 1977. On April 16th, 18-year-old Valentina and 20-year-old Alexander were sitting in a Mercury Montego at around 3 a.m. when suddenly the window exploded. Are you guys seeing a pattern here? Because all of the survivors said the windows didn't just shatter. They blew up. Yeah. Like, just went Which, I mean, makes sense for what we learned of the weapon. If it's, it, a, if it's supposed to do what the police are alluding that it does, right. I can only imagine what it would do. And that's to a human. What would it do to a window? Right. Or like, metal Jesus. or whatever's in its path, basically. Right. I'm sure it absolutely exploded. So two bullets struck Valentina in the skull, which killed her instantly. Alexander was shot twice as well. His were in the top of the head. Unfortunately, he too died a couple hours after the attack. A neighbor had heard the shots being fired and called 911. When police arrived on scene, they first noticed that the most recent shooting took place in close proximity to the attack of Donna. The second thing police noticed was a white envelope addressed to police captain Joe Borelli. Inside contained a letter, which read as follows. So, it's not well written. It's not. And this is the true form. So if I bumble it about, please forgive me. These are the leanings of a crazy person. Right. I will say, though, I don't find it any less chilling. Despite. Absolutely. Like the poor structure here. 
I am deeply hurt by your calling me a woman hater. I am not, but I am a monster. I am the son of Sam. I am a little brat. When Father Sam gets drunk, he gets mean. He beats his family. Sometimes he ties me up to the back of the house. Other times he locks me in the garage. Sam loves to drink blood. Go out and kill, commands Father Sam. Behind our house, some rest. Mostly young, raped and slaughtered, their blood drained, just bones now. Papa Sam keeps me locked in the attic, too. I can't get out, but I look out the attic window and watch the world go by. I feel like an outsider. I'm on a different wavelength than everybody else, programmed to kill. However, to stop me, you must kill me. Attention all police. Shoot me first. Shoot to kill or else. Keep out of my way or you will die. Papa Sam is old now. He needs some blood to preserve his youth. He has had too many heart attacks. Too many heart attacks. Ugh, me hoot, it hurts, sonny boy. Yeah, I don't have the accent. (laughs) I miss my pretty princess most of all. She's resting in our lady's house, but I'll see her soon. I am the monster, Beezlebub, the chubby behemoth. I love to hunt, prowling the streets, looking for fair game, tasty meat. The women of Queens are the prettiest of all. I must be the water they drink. I live for the hunt, my life. Blood for Papa. Mr. Borelli, sir, I don't want to kill anymore. No, sir, no more. But I must honor thy father. I want to make love to the world. I love people. I don't belong on earth. Return me to yahoos. <laughs> to the people of Queens, I love you. And I, I want to wish all of you a happy Easter. May God bless you in this life and in the next. And for now, I say goodbye and good night. Police, let me haunt you with these words. I'll be back. I'll be back. To be interpreted as bang, 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 bang. Ugh. Yours in murder, Mr. Monster. Ugh. Happy no. Easter, though. Well, not the the swings, the swings <laughs> that were taken. Happy Easter. Uh, I love all the people. I'm sure Queens. they were like, mm-hmm. nope, going to lock myself in my house. Thank you very much. <laughs> and that's terrifying, right? Like that is yes, off-putting. absolutely. Like that letter, it's creepy. Was disconcerting. I like best. shoot, shoot to kill. I mm. was like, oh. The thing that just really got me, I think, too, is just the ramblings about Papa Sam and the because. OK, so we have delusions and demons. They're telling you to kill. Now they're voices through dogs. And now you're telling me that there's this demon who needs this blood to stay useful. Who is he? Voldemort? Like, what is happening here? Because he had too many heart attacks. So the blood will save him. And who's the pretty princess? I, I got questions, people. I don't know. Is it his mom? Is it his friend? Is it his situationship? Which mom? Is it the girls that he can't attain? Right. I don't know. So many options. Yeah. None of them That's good. Also terrifying. Yeah. So many choices. <laughs> the look on your face, though. <laughs> so the letter was written in mostly block capital letters, which in and of itself, I feel like would be very off-putting. There's a few lowercase ones mixed in here and there. Notably, this was the first time that the suspect had referred to himself as the son of Sam. Before this, the press had actually dubbed him the 44 caliber killer, obviously, because of his choice of weapon. Mm-hmm. Now, this letter was clearly a full-on taunt 
But the police were kind of just happy to have something that could possibly give them any leads. It gives them more information. It just, if anything, they know that they're dealing with a bona fide crazy person. Mm -hmm. They had come up with a couple different theories. They thought that the phrase me hoot it hurts sunny boy was actually like a Scottish accented version of my heart. It hurts. So perhaps this meant that the writer was familiar with Scottish English. Because when you read my heart, it hurts. That's all I can see now. Right. When I read the disjointed, terrifying version. And I'm not even going to try to do an accent and like figure it out. I just think of like mike myers like shrek or something (laughs) but i can't i can't recreate that for you but in my head that's how i'm reading it yeah (laughs) to give you a visual that helps you visualize it because it did for me no i agree i mean and just putting it in those terms like it just but but where did that come from i i don't know anyways so They also hypothesized that the shooter blamed a black-haired nurse for his father's death. And this could be why the suspect targeted brunettes. To me, this seems a little far-fetched, considering that we know that he has a hard time with women, has Mm -hmm. these, like, really kind of fucked up, entitled views and desires. And so I don't personally really see that as being a valid anything yeah i mean i i wouldn't be surprised if it contributed to things but he didn't know his dad he wasn't there for his father's death right he didn't show up until like eight years later so i just i don't know to me that doesn't really make a lot of sense but i'm sure there there also could be something that we aren't privileged to true the reason that they thought the whole nurse thing was because of the line too many heart attacks they thought about that and the fact that Donna and Jody were actually studying to be in medical fields at the time of their death. Personally, I feel like they're really making some leaps here, but I understand why. Right. Because they just wanted answers. Right. Any answers. Now, initially, the letter was withheld from the public, but eventually law enforcement shared some of the details with the press. I would also like to note that the police attempted to lift fingerprints from the letter and or envelope. Eight officers ended up handling this piece of evidence, but they were eventually eliminated. Unfortunately for the police, it appeared that the killer only used the very tips of his fingers. So forensically, there was nothing. I don't even know how that would work. (laughs) Me neither. But I also would like to point out that this is a moment of clarity, of strategy, and putting thought and preparation into what you're doing well not only the action of using just your fingerprints but actively writing a taunt well you're telling well you're gonna tell me that this person sat down and wrote out that entire letter and then had the sound mind to not put fingerprints on an envelope how i have <laughs> i just i don't oh shit i don't know i just don't know if i buy it or not I- I can't wait to see what you guys think of this because I am just it's wild flabbergasted over here at the end of May the police released a psychological profile on their suspect to construct this they consulted with several psychiatrists and went over the details of this case with a fine tooth comb the son of Sam was described as neurotic and was likely to have paranoid schizophrenia Per the profile, this person likely believed himself to be a victim of demonic possession. 
They also added in the overall profile of a serial killer, noting that the feeling of control over the media, the law enforcement, and even entire populations provided power for them, that they gained additional gratification by eluding pursuers. We see all of those things happening here. Check, check, and check. All at once. Yes. <laughs> like, on literally happening at the same time. <laughs> of awful. Really awful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sushi roll. I don't know. It just that just came completely stopped my thought process. I like it. I think that's right up there with terrible onion layers. Mm-hmm. So, a few days after the profile was released, a common columnist with Daily News named Jimmy Breslin received a handwritten letter from someone who claimed to be the shooter. The letter was postmarked earlier that day and came from Englewood, New Jersey. On the back of the envelope, there were four precisely centered, hand-printed lines that read, Blood and Family, Darkness and Death, Absolute Depravity, and just 44, mm-hmm. like the, the period and then 44. The letter inside read as follows. Again, I'm sorry, but you have to hear it. Yes. <laughs> so, hello from the gutters of NYC which are filled with dog manure, vomit, stale wine, urine, and blood. Hello from the sewers of NYC, which swallow up these delicacies when they are washed away by the sweeper trucks. Hello from the cracks in the sidewalks of NYC and from the ants that dwell in these cracks and feed in the dried blood of the dead that has settled into the cracks. JB, I'm just dropping you a line to let you know that I appreciate your interest in those recent and horrendous 44 killings. I also want to tell you that I read your column daily and I find it quite informative. Tell me, Jim, what will you have for July 29th? You can forget about me if you like, because I don't care for publicity. However, you must not forget Donna Loria, and you cannot let the people forget her either. She was a very, very sweet girl, but Sam's a thirsty lad, and he won't let me stop killing until he gets his fill of blood. Mr. Breslin, sir, don't think that because you haven't heard from me for a while that I went to sleep. No, rather, I'm still here, like a spirit roaming the night, thirsty, hungry, seldom stopping to rest, anxious to please Sam. I love my work. It continues with, now the void has been filled. Perhaps we shall meet face to face someday, or perhaps I will be blown away by cops with smoking 38s. Whatever, if I shall be fortunate enough to meet you... I will tell you all about Sam if you like, and will introduce you to him. No, thank you. His name is Sam the Terrible. Not knowing what the future holds, I shall say farewell, and I will see you at the next job. Or should I say you will see my handiwork at the next job? Remember, Miss Loria. Thank you. In their blood and from the gutter, Sam's creation, 44. Here are some names to help you along. Forward them to the inspector for use by the NCIC. The Duke of Death. The Wicked King Wicker. The 22 Disciples of Hell. John Wheaties, Rapist and Suffocator of Young Girls. P.S. (laughs) P.S. I don't know why. I'm just like, really? (laughs) Please inform all the detectives working the slain to remain. P.S. JB, please inform all the detectives working the case that I wish them the best of luck. 
keep them digging, drive on, think positive, get off your butts, knock on coffins, etc. Upon my capture, I promise to buy all the guys working the case a new pair of shoes if I can get up the money. Son of Sam. What? <laughs> okay. What? There's a lot to unpack there. What is that? Hmm. The thing that really gets me the most is that he, it, it sounds like he is emailing an old friend. Like, I haven't seen you in a while. Here's what's new with me. What's going on with you? Right. Maybe we'll get together soon. That's creepy. It's creepy and gross. Also, it seems very like taunt-ish. Like, don't forget. Don't forget about Donna. Mm-hmm. I'm going to buy the police new shoes if I can get up the money. Now what? that just really. Just being a douche. And the whole like, I'd like, like to meet you. I'm sorry. The thing that, again, this is, I feel like this is just a ploy to make himself sound crazy because like, why else? None of this is by accident. Mm-mm. I just feel like everything no, that absolutely. he's done and said is so deliberate. And I know there's a lot of people out there who are fully on the, he is a crazy person and it was like beyond his control type train. But I just, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not That's there guys. A lot of questions. <laughs> just not sold yet. Mm-mm. So underneath the signature was a symbol of some sort followed by the line, what will you have for July 29? Mm. This was considered a threat. After all, it was the one year anniversary of the Loria Valenti shooting. Breslin immediately notified the police. They did believe that this was from someone who had knowledge of the shootings. They also concluded that this letter was sophisticated in its wording and presentation in comparison to the block letter, whatever was happening in the first one. (laughs) They actually suspected that it had been created in an art studio or some other professional type setting. So naturally, this led them to suspect that the shooter was someone who had expertise in printing, calligraphy, graphic design, maybe a comic book letterer. No, for real, because they actually reached out to DC Comics to see if anybody there recognized the lettering. Like, that's pretty serious. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The Daily News waited one week before publishing the letter in its entirety. I'm surprised that they waited that long, to be honest, especially when one of their reporters was, it was personally addressed to them. They did agree to withhold parts of the letter, but it did come out at some point. Mm Mm-hmm. Breslin used this as an opportunity to urge the killer to surrender. The article made that day's paper the highest selling edition to date. It was more than 1.1 million copies that were sold of a daily newspaper. So just think about that. (laughs) To put that in context for you. Um, After the release of the letter, thousands of tips started rolling in, but literally all of them proved to be useless. Not so fun fact. After the article, stores had a hard time meeting the sudden demand for wigs and hair color. Nobody wanted to be brunette. No. They were either cutting it off, and if they didn't want to cut it, they were covering it up or dyeing it. I had this thought when I was writing the script that, and it it's kind of dark, but I was like, man, I was like, this is why I'm so glad I color my hair red, because you never hear... Of anybody going after the gingers because they don't fuck with ginger. True. <laughs> it's always blondes or brunettes. And I don't know why that thought popped in my brain, but that's funny. It really did. And I was like, this is why I am safe. <laughs> yes. <laughs> also, you know, alternative colors. Like, I don't know. I need to I need to do my hair soon. I'm not allowed to dye my hair. You're not allowed? 
at work. No fun colors. Oh, no colors that don't naturally occur in nature. I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah I remember because when I no longer worked there, I went and did like all the colors for like six months because I just couldn't sure, help myself. So I'm sure I know we're off topic, but it's bound to change <laughs> because they also said no visible tattoos or piercings. And everybody's just like, do you want me to come to work or not? Because COVID. So <laughs> it is a restaurant. I don't my understand. tattoos and my nose ring and just how about suck it? If you <laughs> Sorry out there. <laughs> But not sorry. Also, it was kind of like that for baristas too. Until like the last few years, they started loosening things. I mean, all of us have piercings of some sort, right. or Tattoos of some sort. I don't know. I really want to get my nose pierced. Do it. I know. I really need to. Just do it. I just forget about it until we have a conversation like this. Because ADHD. I'm write it in the <laughs> margins. She sure. <laughs> pierced. My birthday is coming up. So maybe. Yeah. Okay. Anyways. Back to work. <laughs> the next shooting occurred on June 25th, 1977. 20-year-old Salvatore Lupo and his girlfriend, 17-year-old Judy Placido, they were attacked in Queens. The couple had just left a discotheque and they were sitting in their parked car discussing, oddly enough, the son of Sam. It was about 3 a.m. when shots fired through the windows and absolutely destroyed them. Salvatore was stuck was struck in the wrist. That same bullet wound ended up going, or bullet ended up going through the skin of Judy's neck. She was also shot in the head and shoulder. Salvatore rushed back into the discotheque yelling for help. Judy tried to follow, but was only able to make it a few steps before she collapsed. Neither one of them saw who attacked them, so they couldn't give any description. However, there were two witnesses that reported seeing a tall, dark-haired man in a leisure suit fleeing the area. One of them saw him leave in a vehicle and was even able to provide a partial license plate number. A leisure suit? I was just going to say, we're seeing a lot of different outfits. Mm -hmm. Like military fatigues, now suits. Dark hair, blonde hair. Mm. Mm. It's almost like those taunts weren't true. You really don't want them to find you if you're actively changing all of it. That's that's what I'm saying. It's all bullshit. All right. of it. Bullshit, she says. <laughs> so the final shooting took place on July 31st. 20-year-olds Robert Violante and Stacy Moskowitz were on their first date together that night. The attack took place around 1.45 in the morning. They had just gone to see a movie and decided to park their car at a nearby playground. They pulled in to a parking spot conveniently located underneath a street lamp and took a walk around the park. They did notice a quote unquote hippie type man leaning up against the wall of a public toilet. At the same time all this was going down, there was another couple parked in the same parking lot. Tommy Zeno and Debbie Crescendo were sitting in their car. They originally parked in the same exact spot as Robert and Stacy, but felt kind of weird about it, like exposed and lit up. So they wound up moving their vehicle. They had also seen this strange man hanging around the park. Robert and Stacy go back to the car so that they, you know, talk, kiss, whatever, whatever. And like all the rest, the windows suddenly exploded. The man had approached the passenger side of the car and fired four rounds into the vehicle. He was standing within three feet of the car, so up close and personal. Bobby's eardrums actually exploded as Stacy collapsed into his arms. 
Tommy watched all of this play out in his rearview mirror and was able to get a quick look at the shooter before this person quickly escaped into the dark park. Stacy died a little over 24 hours later. Bobby survived, but he was left permanently blinded. Oof. Yes. Can you imagine being that other couple that was in that exact same parking spot and literally watched this happen? Never. I just, they had to have like skirt skirted right, right out of that spot, right? Like, yes. I, it's interesting too, because I would assume that uh, Bobby and his date parked under the light thinking that they would be safe. Right. Because generally speaking, you want to park in a well-lit area. Right. But it's interesting that in this instance, we saw kind of firsthand here that that wasn't the case. Somebody's getting ballsy here. Very bold. Mm. Very, very bold. Now, we mentioned earlier the police tracked down every legal owner of a forty-four caliber bulldog revolver. Revolver. That, <laughs> that my mouth just it. refused to work. <laughs> every single one that lived in NYC. They were brought in for questioning and their guns were forensically tested. Another tactic used throughout this investigation involved the police setting up traps. Undercover officers would pose as couples in the hopes that the suspect would come after them and unknowingly reveal themselves to law enforcement. That seems so dangerous. Right? Do you think that they like weren't in the car? Do you think that maybe dummies were in the car? Because I mean, I don't know. how would you be able to do anything if you were in the car getting attacked? Right. I just have questions. It's not like you have eyes in the back of your head to be watching everywhere all at once. Or people were sitting, hiding in the back seat. Then everybody's at risk. Right. I don't know. It just doesn't seem like a good idea. I mean, it doesn't seem like anybody got hurt because it didn't seem to work. So at least there was that. There's that. (laughs) And then Cecilia Davis came into play. Now, she came forward after four days of silence and she reluctantly shared what she knew with police. She had been out walking her dog near the park where the last shooting took place. She saw a patrol officer ticketing a car that was parked near a fire hydrant. Now, just after after the officer left, a young man walked right past her from the area of the car and somewhat creepily studied her. She took the fuck off, running towards her home. She was not having it. And within a couple of minutes, she heard the shots go off. This was the break that police needed so desperately because this gave them something tangible to look for. And very specific. Very specific. Tickets, record your license plate, make and model, like all that kind of stuff. Exactly. So So they began frantically checking every single ticketed car from that area and time frame. A yellow 1970 Ford Galaxy owned by none other than David Berkowitz was among the long list of names. So on August 9th, 1977, an NYPD detective reached out to the department in Yonkers, hoping that they could help them locate one David Berkowitz. Initially, they weren't thinking suspect. They were thinking potential witness. Maybe he's got information we don't already have. We didn't know. They didn't know. Right. Yonkers police had their own suspicions regarding Berkowitz, thanks to the Son of Sam letters. They had referenced crimes that took place there, which caused detectives in Yonkers to go look at things a little bit differently. Um, The incidents with Harvey the dog being one of them. 
By the end of the conversation, the NYPD were looking at Berkowitz in a completely and very damning light. <laughs> to say the least. Yes. The next day, police went out looking for Berkowitz's car. They found it and began looking around. There was a gun visible in the back seat, which gave them legal permission to search the vehicle. Police found a duffel bag filled with ammo, maps of the crime scenes, and a threatening letter addressed to Inspector Timothy Dowd. Police came up with a plan, which entailed waiting for Berkowitz to leave his building on his own volition. They were hoping that this would limit the chances of a violent confrontation, which I think was probably the right course of action. Especially given what I know about apartment buildings like that, well, that are tall and full of people. The letters and everything. The hallways, the vestibules. It didn't sound like he was going down without a firing. No, I mean, I'm pretty sure fight. he explicitly stated yeah. that that was... Shoot, shoot first. Yeah. Shoot to kill. Right, exactly. So in the meantime, they worked on obtaining a search warrant for the apartment. By 10 p.m., there was still no warrant, but Berkowitz finally left and he got into his car, readying himself to vacate the premises. At this point, Detective John Politico approached the driver's side of the vehicle and he pointed a gun at Berkowitz's temple. They had surrounded him, to which Berkowitz said, well, you got me. In a very creepy way. In a notably flat voice, but with an inexplicably big smile. That's so fucking creepy. creepy. (laughs) The detective responded with, now that I've got you, who have I got? And they have like a little back and forth. And Berkowitz is, I think, trying to like have some fun with this whole moment. But eventually he admitted to being the man that they were looking for. And finally, the son of Sam had been arrested. So he's taken locked up got him under lock and key at 1 a.m mayor beam arrived to personally see the suspect after a brief brief completely wordless encounter the mayor announced to the media quote the people of the city of new york can rest easy because of the fact that the police have captured a man whom they believe to be the son of sam end quote so typical of like a mayor type figure want to rest easy no because you might may Mm mm-hmm who they believe okay i mean look it worked out in this instance like they absolutely did have the man responsible but i feel like absolute statements like that is pretty damning to somebody in that position and i'm kind of surprised but also not surprised not that it happened so on august 11th 1977 berkowitz was interrogated for about 30 minutes in the early morning and he quickly confessed to the shootings He also expressed an interest in pleading guilty for the shootings, which would cut a lot of uh, paperwork. And bullshit out. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So Berkowitz claimed during questioning that his neighbor's dog was the reason that he killed. He stated that the dog demanded the blood of pretty young girls. He said that the Sam mentioned in the first letter was his former neighbor, Sam Carr. He also stated that Carr's black lab Harvey was possessed by an ancient demon that would issue irresistible commands. Basically, i.e., you have to kill people yep. for me. Do it. Allegedly, again, allegedly, this demon was a man from 6,000 years ago, coincidentally also named Sam. I wonder if that's just how like the links are made in, in the brain with all of his delusions. Like He just takes... Again, I, I, 
he takes shit that's happening in the real world. He knew a man named Sam, and mm-hmm. then that just got like applied and to his delusions. And yeah, he's just fitting it to what his brain is doing, or fucking baddie. Yes, that definitely is accurate. <laughs> Several weeks later, Berkowitz was permitted to communicate with the press. Why? God only nobody knows. knows. Bree, nobody knows. <laughs> As if he hasn't had enough time to communicate his feelings. And he loved it. If you saw, if if you ever Google, just image search him. Oh, yeah. Happy as a clam. Take my picture. Smiling. Like, in more often than not, it's very off-putting. Ooh. Very weird. Very, uh, very much I don't like. <laughs> now, in this letter uh, to the New York Post, it was dated September 19th, 1977. He alluded to his original story of demonic possession. That was what he was going with. That was the reason. And he closed it out with a warning. Quote, there are other sons out there. God help the world. Yikes. I wonder here's my theory that he knew that the police suspected that there were multiple shooters right and so i feel like he purposely said that to put that in the police like in back in the back of their mind like Like i'm not the only one Mm -hmm. like muddy their thought process like well do we have to keep looking now right Am I the stop here? Yeah. Just leaving them with a lot of fucking questions. Like, am I the only one that did it? No, there's lots of other signs. Nobody know, girl. And investigators really did believe that this could have been an admission of criminal accomplices. Personally, I don't think there was an accomplice. I think this is like you said, a cap. It's like capitalizing on what the press Mm -hmm. said and just trying to like muddy up what everybody thinks yeah because i confuse people or mislead people especially because we've seen this before too like there's stone cold killers and they're taunting the police and they're doing all the things doing the very most but then the second they get caught they're scared little boys Mm -hmm. and i definitely could see that being the case here right i don't that's totally a uh, an assumption on my part just dig it from what i'm reading here but from what we've gathered yeah So, during a press conference in February of 1979, Berkowitz declared that his claims of demonic possession were just a hoax. I was just fucking with you. (laughs) LOL, JK. (laughs) No. Frank. Ha ha. I hate it. I hate it so much. He's just such an asshole. At every turn, I'm like, what a dick. And this is exactly what I'm saying, is that I feel like the entire time from the very beginning... I mean, I very much believe that he suffered from something like he was in the army. He served. I'm sure there was some shit that happened to him mentally to an extent. He definitely, you know, had his fair share of trauma. Not saying that there wasn't a delusion. I just don't buy that it was to the extent in which he was saying it was. Mm -mm. I think that he was an angry man who didn't get what he wanted in the world. And he took it out on people. Yes. Innocent people. Who had nothing to do with him. He literally said he was mad he wasn't getting laid. Like we've we have a whole episode, technically two episodes, dedicated to this very type of person. Right. I just and then he comes out and he's like, you guys, I was just, just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> he later stated in a series of meetings with David Abrahamson, we talked about that a little earlier. They had, he said that he had long contemplated murder as a way to get revenge on a world that he felt had rejected and hurt him. So which is it? Are you delusional? Is it demons? Or are you just mad? Are you butthurt? I can't tell. <laughs> I think it's butthurt. I think, I think it might be. <laughs> so 
At any rate, during three separate mental health examinations, it was determined that David Berkowitz was competent enough to stand trial. His defense attorney still advised him to enter a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. However, he refused. Well, it's because he wasn't insane. Right. Just mad. He literally said it to the whole world. Right. Douche. On May 8th, 1978, he appeared calm and cool as a cucumber as he pled guilty to all of the shootings. And then, two weeks later, during sentencing, David Berkowitz went cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. (laughs) He tried to jump out of a seventh floor courtroom window. Uh, He also... After he was restrained, chanted Stacy, who was the last victim, was a whore. He also shouted out, I'd kill her again. I'd kill them all again. So old statement, sir. I just can't. Are you mad that now you're you know what your sentence is going to be? You have to know if you plead guilty to six deaths. You're especially if his lawyer was trying to encourage a different route. Right. He had to have been informed. I just think that he is arrogant enough to think that to, or arrogant enough that it didn't matter. Right. I guess is what I was trying to trying mm. to get at. Now, due to this whole little outburst of his, the court ordered another psychiatric examination before sentencing could proceed further. During this evaluation, Berkowitz drew a sketch of a jailed man surrounded by walls, and at the bottom he wrote, "I am not well, not well at all." He was again found competent to stand trial. So I have a question. Remember that month when he only left his apartment for food? Mm, yeah. That's like a jail. Oh, do you think he was drawing that? Was he drawing that instead? Mm. Just as another tactic to just try to throw people off this Maybe. weird, I don't know what like, bro, he's even trying to, to jail, do. You insisted you were going to plead guilty so that. You pled guilty That's your punishment. pretty much with a smile on your face, right. sir. Like, what and do you think's going to happen? Bro, I'm, <clears throat> again, what? <laughs> so <laughs> many questions. What? <laughs> so on June 12th, 1978, David Berkowitz was sentenced to 25 years to life for each murder to be served consecutively. He was ordered to serve time at Attica initially, which is a supermax prison in upstate New York. I drove by a prison in New York on our way home from vacation yesterday. Yeah. It was not to be fucked with. Right. <laughs> Scary. There were walls of razor wire with more razor wire inside, and mm-hmm. they were very tall walls. <laughs> very tall. <laughs> very alarming. Oh, no. However, this crazy, insane murderer who happily pled guilty was eligible for parole in 25 years. This was due to the terms of his guilty plea, which, again, was that another calculation on his part? Right. Was it just sheer luck? I don't I don't really know. You tell me. Um, this clause or whatever was upheld despite prosecutors' very stern objections to it. Because so, they didn't think he deserved to be out ever. Right. So it leads me to believe that it had to have been something that his lawyer must have really fought for, or it was like a mandatory part of... You can't what get that happens? lucky when you plead guilty to six murders, though. I don't Is that under- how that works? I don't oh. understand the justice system sometimes. <laughs> That's why we're here, trying to figure it out. because it's, Trying to piece it together. It's a wily, a wily thing, our justice system. <laughs> a wily coyote. <laughs> I was going to say That's that, but I was head. like, I was that, like- just, that just didn't feel right. But now I made it weird. Anyways, 
After his arrest, Moving on. <laughs> after his arrest, Berkowitz was initially held in a psych ward in Kings County Hospital before getting transferred several times throughout his prison career. He was later transferred to Shawangunk Correctional Facility. That's literally how it's spelled. What a name. Who knows? I don't know. <laughs> Shit is wild. Um, this is in Ulster County. Wikipedia says this is currently where he's serving time. But other sources have said he's been transferred elsewhere. At any rate, he is behind bars. But yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if people that are like high profile in this in this regard, uh, if they got moved around a lot more than other prisoners might. It also doesn't help that at one point somebody did try to kill him. I mean, back in 1979, uh, the left side of his neck was actually slashed from front to back. The resulting wound required 50 plus stitches to close. Yikes. Berkowitz refused to snitch, which is probably good because he would have gotten more stitches. I was like, he, or worse, <laughs> snitches. Snitches do get stitches. <laughs> he, oddly enough, said that he was grateful for the attack. I don't know. He said that it brought a sense of justice or, quote unquote, the punishment he deserved. No, His I don't words. I think so, but all right. We're getting closer. You survived, sir. You big butt. them's fighting words Mm. so david berkowitz has been up for parole many times it happens every two years each time it has been denied he wrote to the parole parole board in 2002 quote in all honesty i believe that i deserve to be in prison for the rest of my life i have with god's help long ago come to terms with my situation and i have accepted my punishment oh that's that's so great for you. Now that you don't have a choice. Mm. Right. Um, he actually wound up going as far as to ask the governor to cancel his parole hearing in that instance. That almost makes me more mad because no, you don't deserve it. But I also don't want you to agree with that. Right. Just be like, I've made peace with it. Mm. Have a seat. <laughs> you sir. don't deserve peace. No. When you, when you terrorize people like the way he Correct. did. You took away everybody else's peace for over a year. Right. Fuck right off, sir. Right. In 2011, he stated that he has no interest in pursuing parole whatsoever. He reportedly said that he will request to remain in prison each and every time. And he ultimately mostly just skips the hearings altogether. So I guess we'll see how that kind of unfurls in the future. We saw this early on with Charles Manson and they let that monster back out. So hopefully we've learned from our mistakes. Fingers (laughs) fucking crossed. In 2016, he stated, well, that parole was unrealistic. He felt that he had improved himself behind bars. He added, I I feel I am no risk whatsoever. Cool. He's a flip-flopper. Let's make up your goddamn mind. Just fucking pick one. Jeez. You should have stayed with the delusions. It probably would have served you a lot better, sir. So his lawyer did actually note that prison staff consider David Berkowitz to be a model prisoner. Mm. He does have a parole hearing coming up. It is scheduled for May of 2024. If anybody wants to call or write a letter, feel free. I can't wait to see how that turns out. I just want to know if he shows up. Yeah. Is he going to change his mind again? I'm rehabilitated, so now I want out. Or I should stay in prison for the rest of my life. It's what I deserve. Or are we going to be demonic again? I don't know. It's like a mixed bag. So many. There's just so many options. I think it depends on how he's feeling that day. 
it certainly adds an extra layer here that he he became an evangel an evangelical <laughs> Christian like, evangelical <laughs> in 1987 while in prison. According to his personal testimony, his moment of conversion occurred after reading Psalms 34 six from a Bible from a Bible. He says it's now he's now referred to as the son of hope in jail rather than son of sam hope for what right i just i'm genuinely what right what son of hope hope that i can be reformed in prison hope that i can stay in jail for the rest of my life because i deserve it i really just want to shoot off an email and be like what (laughs) sir do you hope that the devil dogs leave you alone i don't what is it (sighs) so uh at some point, he invited a man named Malachi Martin, who just happened to be an exorcist, to help him compose an autobiography. Pretty soon after his imprisonment, this offer was not accepted. This is the kind of shit that I'm talking about with this guy, because this is only the beginning here. Mm-hmm. In later years, he developed his memoirs with the help of fellow evangelicals. His statements were released in 1998. This was in the form of an interview video titled Son of Hope. No. Oh, maybe we should find it. Maybe we can find out what he hopes for. I'm sure the interweb is very vast. (laughs) I have not watched it because I'm sure it will make me mad. But perhaps with some pizza and wine in hand. Putting it on the docket. Putting it on the docket. Uh, There was a more extensive working title, uh, Son of Hope, The Prison Journals of David Berkowitz. That was released in 2006 in book form. He does not receive any royalties from these works, BTW. And despite there being a website that he kind of runs, quote unquote, a church group actually maintains it on his behalf because he's not allowed access to a computer. Nor should he be. The last thing we need to give this man is the internet. Well, yet another pedestal to stand on. The letters were bad enough. No. Can you imagine him on like on, on the X or something? Oh, dear Lord. <laughs> That's where he would go first. How much you want to bet? Vast wasteland. I'm so sorry. If you guys follow us on Twitter, we're very much more active on Instagram. You should find us on I Instagram. I just cannot do X. <laughs> I can't. We have hit our limits. It's true. With all of, of that crazy over there. Like that. <laughs> um, so from prison, Berkowitz continues to assert and expand upon his claims of demonic possession. He stated in a series of nine videos in 2015 that the quote-unquote voice that he heard was that of Samain, a druid devil, and the true origin of Son of Sam. He added that it was never a dog, saying that detail was actually fabricated by the media. Sir? But it wasn't fabricated if you told them that. And also, you literally tried to hurt a poor innocent puppy. I mean, I'm pretty sure it was a dog, but still. How dare you try to minimize that? Rude. I'm over him. Uh, let's see. There was some satanic cult claims because this he just could not take any kind of actual responsibility for anything that he did. It was always something else. And also he likes to talk like oh so God. much. Talk and talk and so talk much. and talk. Could you imagine if him and Kemper were in a room with each other? It would never My end. God. I would probably go crazy from it yeah oh absolutely that would be a nightmare Mm -hmm. an interesting nightmare but a nightmare nonetheless so once he was in sullivan prison he actually began to claim that he had joined a a satanic cult that 
in the spring of 1975, which contributed to his desires to murder murder all the people. In 1993, he announced to the press that he had only actually killed three of the Son of Sam victims, Loria, Esau, and Suriani. In this version of events, he said that the other shooters that were involved were part of the cult. He said that he had fired the gun only in the first and sixth attacks. He said that he and several other cult members planned the events, provided early surveillance of the victims, which you didn't because they were random. Right. We'll fight (laughs) tooth and nail on this. And that he and these other members acted as lookout slash drivers at the scenes. He also said he could not divulge any names without putting his family at risk. What family? Who? Who? I want to know. Who do you claim? Worried about your adopted father took off to Florida. He likely has nothing to do with you at this point, right? You didn't like your stepmom, right? Or your mom, right? Or your sister, right? So what's happening here? It's all bullshit. It's just another way for him to try to chuck off the blame to somebody else, or also like what was that in the nineties? Satanic panic, all of that jazz had like I just, just think he's happened. Trying to confuse people. Stop giving him a microphone. That's my two cents. <laughs> Literally, somebody stop asking. I know I have questions, but let's not try to get no, answers. <laughs> not from him. Let's ask a professional or something. <laughs> it just seemed too convenient. You know, he alluded it's to the mm-hmm. several other, you know, accomplices, and now all of a sudden it's a cult. It just it it's I'm not, not saying there aren't cults like this out there. I'm just yeah. saying I will eat my shoe if he's a part of it. I also don't. I'm inherently just not going to agree that it was a satanic cult in the first place because that's just wildly inaccurate of those kinds of situations, which we'll get to someday. That's Ugh, on the docket. Maybe it for Halloween. We have a very long list. Mm-hmm. That would be fun for Halloween. Anyways. We were in planning mode before we started yeah. <laughs> started recording today. We're so about the future, y'all. <laughs> uh, let's see. He also claimed that there was a female cult member who fired the gun at two of the victims. He said that she was actually unfamiliar with like the recoil of the forty four. Really odd and specific detail put in there for no reason, just, just to distract. Don't get it. Most people, obviously, these two people, as well as a lot of professionals <laughs> and most of the people I saw in the, on the interweb, mm-hmm. literally just think it's all bullshit on David Berkowitz's part. It's- just trying to like dart like and bait and confuse and cash in on the satanic panic. You know it- what I think? I think it's another form of him to have control. I mean, they mentioned control and the manipulation because they mentioned with the arson thing that they enjoyed kind of having that control over the environment. And Mm -hmm. this gives them another way to bring bring himself back to the forefront of people's minds. And and with the serial killers, they like having control over populations of people, not only the media or the investigating officers, but like his weird captive audience right absolutely because i mean of course there you know there's going to be people out there who like the people running his website right releasing his videos yeah i can't with i have questions for them son of hope okay (laughs) (laughs) we are gonna find it okay so before we wrap up we do want to mention really briefly the son of sam law because we actually went over this when we uh covered eileen warnos mm-hmm. that was a really big part but i'm pretty sure this is a big part of where and why we have that law in the first place yes 
it's obviously called the Son of Sam Law. So this is also known as a notoriety for profit law. It's a law designed to keep criminals from profiting off their publicity from their crimes, pretty much. It also can be extended to include friends, neighbors, family members of the criminal, basically trying to ensure that anybody involved with the crime itself, like the committing of the crime or in relation to the person who committed the crime that nobody can benefit. Like, oh, let me tell my story. No, no. I was the son of Sam's brother mm -hmm. and this is what happened. Like, nope. So although David Berkowitz himself denied trying to or even wanting to make any deals to profit off of his crimes, the New York state legislature quickly passed legal statutes because they could just see the writing on the wall. Right. He likes to talk to the media specifically. We're not. I don't not think that it. he was really hiding his intentions. The not whole thing with the bit. website and the Ugh. videos. Ugh. <laughs> So the original version of this law was invoked in New York 11 times from 1977 to 1990, one of which is notable because it was against Mark David Chapman, who murdered John Lennon. And I'm still upset at <laughs> still mad about it. Mm -hmm. There have been arguments that these type of types of laws infringe on freedom of speech, which is an interesting take. Uh, other arguments say that these laws take away any financial incentive for criminals to tell their stories, which I think is really important here. And some of this was vital interest to the general public, you know, think Watergate, that kind of thing. Like they have to, I, I do feel like this is necessary. But should they be able to profit from it? No. Right. You you chose to do this especially i mean like you were involved in this. i mean obviously real rich coming from us look at what we're doing but like I, they shouldn't yeah be, but i didn't murder i was just gonna people. say like I'm they not gonna be like Bree, do you want to talk to me about that time that demons had me killing people <laughs> i hope that's never Let's a conversation money. like what? yeah it, exactly the whole thing is just asinine and think of the the victims and their families like what right. a, Ew. That's just it, right? There there has to be a line somewhere, and yes. the line is definitely a criminal should not be able to. I don't see how this infringes upon free speech. What? Because when you, you sort of sacrificed some of your rights right. when you went out killing that's what people. I was that's what I was gonna say is like when you become uh, incarcerated, you lose most of your rights, if not all of them. So you are no longer entitled to that. And I'm not so what do you think you're gonna act in all instances, but stuff like this, right? Mm -mm. I've got my issues with the justice system. Obviously, a big part of the reason why we're doing this is because we want to learn more and educate ourselves after a lot of what happened over the last few years. Right. And this is as good a way to do it as any, but like, come on now. Mm. So in 2001, a new, a new New York law was adopted. This law requires that victims of crimes be notified whenever a person convicted of a crime or said crime receives more than $10,000 from virtually anywhere. Doesn't matter where. It then attaches a springing statute of, of limitations when this happens. It gives the victim an extended period of time to then sue the perpetrator in civil court for their crimes. It also winds up allowing the Crime Victims Board, which is a state agency, but they act on behalf of the victims in some circumstances. I believe if it's like children involved mm. or people who are incapacitated by the crime or so on and so forth. Yeah. Or on behalf of the estates kind of deal. Similar laws have since been enacted in 41 states and as well at 
federal level. So all in all, I think it's a pretty important thing to put in place. And I think it's really interesting that this case of, out of all of them is kind of the one that got this ball rolling. Mm-hmm. Because like Sue said, it was only a matter of time before he started trying to make money. I, oh, for sure. I am positive that was his intention. Absolutely. You can't convince me otherwise. Well, like I said, any photos of him in handcuffs, he's got a gigantic smile on his face. Yeah. He's looking directly at the camera like, give me more. Very off-putting. Fame, money, any of it. Which is so interesting when you Ooh. consider how introverted he was as a mm-hmm. kid. So I'm dying to know what your guys' thoughts are yeah. on all of this. So what please let Demons? us know. Mental health? Both? Psychopath? Just plain douchey? Somebody who is bored, mad at the world. They're, literally, we have a plethora of choices here. Honestly, and he's cycled through them all. Yes, as excuses. So yes, he has definitely claimed each one as Ugh. the reason at different points throughout. This Which time makes period. it worse. I'm curious. That means you're lying. We've got less than a year before his next parole yeah. hearing, and I'm so curious to see how this goes down because oh, yeah. I feel like. It's a whole new kind of shit show every single time. Absolutely. Don't you guys worry. We're going to definitely tag that. Make sure that we know when that happens and let you guys know what happens. I'm going to set a news alert. Google alert. I have so many, so many, so many. And on that note, we're going to wrap things up for us. We're going to skedaddle. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your support and your love. And you just have no idea. How much it means to Susan and I. It does mean the world. We appreciate you. All of you. So much. Make sure you guys are following the podcast on social media, on Facebook and Instagram. We're at Crime and Spirits Pod. On X, X. or whatever, we're at Crime Spirits Pod. We are really going to start encouraging people to just find us on Instagram and Facebook. And mm-hmm. eventually in the near future, we are conquering TikTok. Watch out. Your girls are learning some shit. We're going to do it. Um, But for now, if you check out Instagram and Facebook, you'll find ingredients, recipes, fun videos, teasers, showing you how to make each drink, giving you a sneak peek of what we're going to be talking about. If you'd like to follow us personally, you can find us both on Instagram. I am at Suze, not Susan. And I am at Brie underscore not the cheese. We are both cat moms. We do some Mm -hmm. crafts, just general nonsense on a regular basis. There's a couple drag shows coming up in the next few months. Very excited for. So excited. (laughs) Uh, So, that being said, if you love what we're doing and you want to support us and you don't want to give us money, which is totally understandable. Absolutely. The best thing that you could possibly do is to go leave us a rating and review on Apple or whatever platform it is that you are listening on. You have no idea. I've literally seen us jump in search results from where we started and it's incredible to see and I want us to keep going. Yes. And we can do that with your help. So pretty, pretty, pretty please. please. <laughs> um, if you would like to recommend a case or a cocktail for us to check out, you can email us at crimeandspiritspodcast at gmail.com. And finally, if you are interested in becoming a monthly supporter monetarily of our podcast, there is a link for that in the show notes. Feel free to smash it, but don't feel pressured. No pressure. Mm-mm. None whatsoever. Now, it is corny joke time. Yeah. My favorite time of the podcast. That's not entirely true. It is mm. a lot of pressure trying to find jokes. I also it's forget true. what I <laughs> pick sometimes because, you know, I just ADD. ADHD. All right. So are you ready? Mm-hmm. What do you call a lazy kangaroo? I don't know. 
a pouch potato. <laughs> Aww, I love it. <laughs> that was a little fun, corny one for no, us. Oh, I like it. Little baby kangaroos are adorable. <laughs> I know, right? By the way. <laughs> well, I've been missing my friend Paige a lot, and I don't know. It just felt right. So, all right, you guys. Make sure you're out there doing the right thing. You're responsibly enjoying your adult beverages. I cannot stress with the, stress this enough. Don't be stupid. Stay home. Eat a snack. Drink some water. And have the best fucking day. Absolutely. Bye. Bye.